Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Nice long week. We haven't seen each other. Oh, we've seen each other. We've seen That's each other. That's a lie. We haven't recorded together in two weeks. I know, because you were busy moving. Yes. Welcome to my humble abode. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's a new setup, so hopefully everything sounds the same. We're yeah. not quite sure, but it should sound good. And we put a peep pop filter on our mics. So I can say the word police officer now without feeling extremely self-conscious every time. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mandy. <laughs> Thanks for making me feel good about that. Today we're going to be talking about the abduction and murder of a beautiful 19-year-old woman named Brianna Dennison. Brianna was born on March 29, 1988 to Jeff and Bridget Dennison. She was the light of their lives and they delighted in their new parenthood. Her parents viewed children as life's most precious gift, and they believed in the importance of a close family bond, not only with each other, but with members of the extended family as well. Brianna was an only child for five years, at which time her little brother, Brighton, was born. When Brianna was just six years old, Brighton just a baby, their father sadly passed away, leaving Brianna's mother to pick up the pieces and raise her children on her own, which she did a very good job at, by all accounts of people who knew the family. Yeah. They spent most of Brianna's childhood in Reno, Nevada, but would also spend time in Bridget's hometown of Mendocino, California. The story of Brianna's untimely death takes place in Reno, which brings us to this week's segment of We Yelp This City. So I still feel bad that we named it We Yelp This City when in actuality we Google this city right. and we never bothered to leave a Yelp review. Right. We've never been to no. these places. No. Actually, in one, False of advertising. The, one of the options for this segment was more stuff we Googled. So... That's really what it should have been called. It really should have. So <laughs> our apologies, but, you know, we're not going to change it. So um, there isn't a ton of levity to be found in this case, to be honest. Um, so we figured we'd have a little bit of fun with We Yelp the City. So Reno is located in the in northern Nevada. And as of 2015, the population was 241,000 people. Um, and it's also known as, do you, know what, do you know what their tagline is? I don't. The biggest little city. Oh. Yeah, you know that. You just... I didn't know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. <laughs> well, fair enough. Now you do. Look at that. This is basically like bar trivia that we're giving you. Perfect. It's wonderful. Yeah. So some quick facts, uh, fun facts about Reno. In Reno, did you know it's illegal to say bad words in front of a dead body? Wow. Yeah. I don't know how it's punishable <laughs> or how they would rat you out, but apparently it's a no-go in Reno. So before taking the pen name Mark Twain... Samuel Clemens traveled to Reno in search of silver and gold. Did not find any. So that's a very anticlimactic. No silver and gold fact. in the desert? No. <laughs> Turns out they didn't find any. No. So uh, this one I really love, and I'm going to try not to sing it. Um, Eddie Money. Do you know Eddie Money? Okay. <laughs> I love when Mandy just automatically rolls her eyes and like shrugs her shoulders and just says no to me. Eddie Money filmed the video for his hit song, Take Me Home Tonight in Reno. Oh, I know that song. You know that song. Yeah, see, <laughs> yeah. I love that song. Um, and lastly, my last little fact is one of the best mockumentary style shows that I love and adore and I guarantee Mandy has never seen, Reno 911. Nope. Nope, not Radio again. Silence. Radio <laughs> silence. But so much shame coming from you to me. Um, and that was based in the town of Reno and ran from 2003 to 2009. And if you love like improvish kind of stuff, this is like about the police officers in Reno. And it's so funny and so twisted. And absolutely, Lieutenant Dangle is one of my favorite characters ever. 
By the time Brianna was a teenager, she had been successfully raised into an intelligent, responsible, kind, and compassionate young woman. She was exactly the kind of daughter a parent would dream of having and the type of loyal friend that everyone wished they had. She had a passion for traveling, and even though she was young, she had already gotten to experience various locations, including Hawaii, New York, Mexico, Japan, Hungary, Austria, France, and Italy, to name a few. She actually um, traveled, studied abroad with her family in Italy. Once she was back in the States, Brianna was accepted into the psychology program at Santa Barbara City College in California. She had a passion for helping others, and she aspired to work with children. Having Brianna away at college was hard for her mom, who would call her frequently just to make sure she was okay. When Brianna was in the middle of her sophomore year at college, she decided to return to Reno to see the friends and family that missed her. On the morning of Saturday, January 19, 2008, Brianna was home at her mom's house enjoying a relaxing morning of lounging around and getting some laundry done. She had made plans to meet up with some of her friends later that night to attend a concert. She spent the rest of the day with her mom, and at around 9 p.m., as she was getting ready to head out, she told her mom goodbye and asked if she wanted her to call when she made it back to her friend's house later that night. Since Bridget knew where Brianna would be staying, she told her not to worry about calling and to just go out and have a good time. By 10 p.m. that night, Brianna and her best friend, KT, were at the concert, pushing their way to the front and having a blast. The two girls were later joined by another friend named Jessica sometime after midnight. The three girls left the concert together and took a shuttle bus back to the popular college party spot, the Sands Regency Casino Hotel. So did you guys have any kind of those those rules growing up? We always had this rule, call when you get there, call when you leave. Yeah. And so that was always like, and I still do that. I, I still do. Yeah. yeah. I just, for whatever reason, it helps my own peace of mind to know if something happens to me, you know, from here to here. You knew where I was. Yeah. Now where am I? Yeah. It's so built into me now that like yeah. I even do it with like friends. Like I'll send a text. Like did you make – if they're yeah. going from like a long drive, I'll be like, did you make it there? Did you Yeah. You never write me that. So I I'm interested. I do actually. No. Well, I like to ignore you. So it could be that. Maybe I just you feel like you're – You also don't take a lot of long road trips. So <laughs> – I do my best to avoid that. Yeah. And her traveling, that's so amazing to be so young and to have experienced so much. Like I feel like I've – done nothing in my life yeah reading reading some of those so it's really cool that she was so well traveled and everyone's talking about what a great person she was and she had all this aspiration to work with children and you just know that that's the kind of person you would want in your life right Jessica started getting tired at around two in the morning and decided to head back to KT's house where the girls had all planned on sleeping even though she could have walked the cold weather temperatures led her to flagging down a total stranger in an SUV and asking for a ride back to KT's Brianna and KT stayed behind and eventually were seen on surveillance grabbing breakfast at the casino diner before a friend drove them home to KT's house. The girls got in at around 3.30 in the morning. KT went up to her bedroom while Brianna decided to crash on the couch in the living room. Several hours later at around 9 in the morning, KT and Jessica woke up for the day and headed in the kitchen to make some breakfast. Side note, every time I say KT, I think KD, like KD Lang, and I have a bunch of old country songs coming in my head. Just me. Apparently just me. <laughs> it's always just you. It really is. <laughs> Her friends were a little surprised but not alarmed that Brianna was no longer sleeping on the couch, but KT assumed that Brianna had gotten uncomfortable and moved up to one of the other roommates' bedrooms to sleep. KT went upstairs and knocked on her roommate's bedroom doors to let Brianna know it was time to wake up, but when she got no response to her repeated attempts, her mind began to race and she grew more and more concerned. As the girls started looking around the apartment, they realized that all of Brianna's personal belongings were still there, including her cell phone, shoes, and all the clothes she had brought with her. 
Upon further inspection, Katie noticed what looked like blood on the pillow that Brianna had been using on the couch. At this point, a panicked KT called Brianna's mother to let her know that she was missing before dialing 911 to report it as well. So this reminds me a little bit of, do you remember in the Amanda Knox story whenever she like comes back in the house and like she does all these things and there's like kind of some chaos going on, not nearly, way more than there is in this story. There's very small clues here. But she just goes on about her day and then people really kind of laid into her and that's a lot of why she was probably a suspect to begin with. Right. Um, that how did you not see these things? And I just think sometimes you don't even want to see them. Or you like, why would that be in your head? Like you see the pillow, they probably did see some blood or something on it, but you could have thought, oh, lipstick. She's obviously upstairs. You know what I mean? Like right. your your natural response is not to think somebody somebody's taken my friend. Right. And I was in the house. Of course. Yeah. And really, it hasn't been that much time because they got in like right. so early in the morning. I mean, it's only been a few hours. And mm-hmm. so I can imagine just the confusion Yeah. Um, to wake up and then just first of all, like, where is she? And then as you start realizing like all of her things are here. But like you said, it's not your first thought to think that somebody has come in and no. taken, taken and a you person didn't hear out anything. of my house. Right. You didn't hear anything. You sleep through all of it. That's, yeah, that's got to be incredibly jarring. Brianna's mom was instantly worried when she got the phone call from KT, and she knew that Brianna would have never left her friend's home without her cell phone or in bare feet. It was her mom who pressed the issue for authorities to get her daughter's information out into the media as quickly as possible because this was not a situation where Brianna would have just gotten up and left on her own accord. The detectives began by investigating Brianna's cell phone records. At 4.23 a.m., she had sent a text message to her boyfriend in Oregon. This would be the last documented time that anyone had heard from Brianna. Sometime between that text message and 9 a.m., Brianna vanished. As they continued to search for evidence and clues as to what happened, police obtained a DNA profile of an unknown male off the door handle on the back door of the apartment. And this was touch DNA, so um, it wasn't like blood or saliva or anything like that. This was um, from where the suspect had grabbed the door handle. There was enough skin cells left behind on the handle that they were able to put together a DNA profile, which is pretty cool. Yeah. They also noted what appeared to be mascara and bite marks on the pillow that Brianna had been using, indicating that someone had placed the pillow over her face during the initial attack. All of this evidence led police to believe that they were investigating an abduction. Brianna's family set up a command post and hundreds of volunteers showed up to aid in the search for Brianna, many of which would show up in their work clothes after working at local casinos all night to spend the day searching for the missing teen. As the search continued, police were able to obtain security footage of the SUV believed to have been driven by the strange man who gave Brianna's friend Jessica a ride home that night. Police believed he was a person of interest in the case and urged him to come forward to be questioned. Within days, the man contacted police and willingly submitted the DNA for testing. It was not a match to the DNA found at the crime scene, but it wouldn't be long before police would stumble upon another lead. Can you imagine being that guy and like your your vehicle's on the news and yeah. you're thinking, I just gave this girl a ride. Right. Oh my goodness, what have I done? Yeah, I couldn't get to the police station fast enough just to be like, here's my DNA. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to be, I always want to be as far away you from that would... as possible. Yeah. Investigators later learned that the DNA profile they had found at the scene was also linked to two other attacks in the same area that had taken place about one month and two months prior to Brianna's disappearance. The previous attacks were sexually motivated, leading police to believe that they had a serial rapist and possible murder suspect on their hands. Detectives contacted the women involved in the two previous attacks. The first victim, a 22-year-old student at the University of Nevada, Reno, hadn't looked at her attacker's face, but she was absolutely certain that he was a white male with large hands and fingers and had no accent. The victim also described the vehicle that she was forced into during her attack. 
Police believed that the vehicle she described was most likely a 2005 to 2006 Toyota Tacoma extended cab four-wheel drive pickup truck, which is very specific that they could narrow that down to that. The victim also divulged other small but important details, such as she recalled seeing a baby shoe inside the truck. She also told police that the attacker had taken her underwear and kept it. Detectives who had investigated this particular attack were able to obtain a DNA profile of the attacker, and when compared to the DNA profile from the scene of Brianna's disappearance, it was a match. Can you imagine all that this girl has gone through and to see this baby this baby shoe in the truck with you and know this guy's probably a father or right. has access to children? It's horrifying. Yeah. Police released a description of the man and the vehicle they believed were connected to the case, and suddenly all eyes were on every white man driving an extended cab pickup truck. Then another victim stepped forward with her story. She had been attacked and sexually assaulted at gunpoint in October of 2007, which was a few months prior to Brianna's disappearance. This particular victim had not reported her attack to the authorities out of embarrassment and fear of the fallout of reporting a sexual assault, but she did have valuable information to lend to the detectives. She had actually seen her attacker's face. With her description, police were able to have a sketch drawn up of the man they believed they were looking for, and the young woman disclosed another detail. Her rapist had also taken her underwear and kept them following the attack. Which obviously, this is so heartbreaking to hear that somebody has been attacked and been violated and had all these things done to her. Nothing that she's done wrong. This is all this guy, and she doesn't feel like she can even speak out about it and and get help. But how strong of her to be able to go to the police and have this description and really be able to put a face to this when they just, they don't have a whole lot to go on. They have this DNA, but it's not in the database, so what are they going to do with it? The whole city of Reno was on high alert with many female college students even choosing to leave campus after word that a serial rapist was on the loose in their small neighborhood. Forensic experts worked tirelessly to find a match for the DNA they believe belonged to the suspect. They tested over 3,000 criminal DNA samples to no avail. Detectives began paying visits to the registered sex offenders in the area and obtained over 700 new DNA samples, none of which matched the DNA from the crime scene. Men from all over the area even turned over their own DNA just to clear their own name, and although police appreciated the help, they knew that the real offender would likely not be willing to give up his DNA quite that easily. 25 days had passed since Brianna went missing, and they were no closer to knowing what happened to her. But on February 16, 2008, a man was taking a shortcut walk through a field in an industrial park when he came upon what he thought was a body partially covered in snow that had just started to melt away. He dialed 911 and told them that he believed he had found the body of a young Caucasian female. Detectives prepared Brianna's mother for the strong possibility that they had found the body of her young daughter. In somewhat denial and disbelief, Bridget asked whether the remains had pierced ears, which Brianna did not have, or a nose ring. She was told that they would have to wait for DNA to confirm because the body had been exposed to the elements and they were unable to tell her any of those identifying details. Two pairs of thong underwear were also found tucked under the remains. That's so upsetting for her because she's wanting these answers and thinking, okay, so if they can see that this this person has pierced ears, it's not my daughter. And then to hear them say, it's so bad, we couldn't even tell you that, then Obviously, that just it's just another layer to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. More pain. The next day, police officially announced that an autopsy determined that the remains did, in fact, belong to Brianna. She had been strangled to death in what was a sexually motivated crime. The pairs of underwear found at the site were tested for DNA, and police learned that, surprisingly, neither one of them belonged to Brianna. One pair had DNA from an unknown woman, 
while the other pair were identified as belonging to Brianna's friend, KT Hunter. On that same pair of underwear was additional DNA belonging to the suspect and also some that belonged to Brianna. Detectives concluded that she had been strangled with the hip strap of that pair of underwear. I know. What do you say? There is really nothing to say. No. I know. This the this whole case really kind of got to me. Like we said in the yeah. beginning, there's just really not a lot of room for levity in this one. It's just really heartbreaking and terrible and just disgusting what this guy did. Yeah. Um, and I was just really surprised whenever they said that the other pair of underwear was KT's because does that mean he was going and rummaging through her room or her stuff? Like, how did he get those? Right. Um, So, and imagine being her too. I mean, not only now has your, this has happened to your friend, but then you find out like, you know, I just, the reality of it all setting in, like this man was in my house. He was, you know, doing God knows what in there, you know, for how long he was even in the house. And um, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Step into the glitzy world of June's journey and prepare for an adventure that's out of this world. Get ready to ditch the dull and dive into a world where mystery meets glamour and where June Parker's drama-filled escapades will have you hooked faster than you can say, flapper dress. Whether you're itching for a whodunit fix or just craving an escape from the mundane, June's journey is your ticket to excitement. Follow June as she unravels family secrets and untangles the web of mystery surrounding her sister's death. It's like joining a high society soiree, but with way more intrigue and way fewer dull conversations about the weather. Just kidding. You know we love a weather chat. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and immerse yourself in a world where every corner holds a new clue and every twist keeps you guessing. But hold on to your pearls because June's journey isn't just another run-of-the-mill mobile game. I'm already knee-deep in the fifth chapter of June's journey, and each chapter is more fun than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the toe-tapping music, everything about June's journey screams class. So what are you waiting for? Step into June's world and let the adventure begin. Can you crack the case? Download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee deep in the fifth chapter and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Although police were able to give Brianna's family and friends some of the answers they were desperately seeking, they still hadn't been able to identify who was responsible for this heinous crime. More than 40 detectives followed up on thousands of leads, but weeks passed and they still hadn't made any arrests in connection with the case. In a frantic attempt to find Brianna's killer before he could strike again, police made a bold decision to release the information about the underwear found with Brianna's body in hopes of getting someone to come forward with more information. They continued to follow leads until they reached their ends and combed through hundreds upon hundreds of anonymous tips. 
A lead detective in the case had sat down at his desk to continue looking through the stack of potential leads when one in particular caught his eye. It was an anonymous tip about a woman who had found thong underwear in her boyfriend's truck that did not belong to her. The tip included a name. It was Jay Bila. Police searched the driver's license database in Nevada and discovered a man named James Bila who looked eerily similar to the man from the forensic sketch they had on their suspect. When detectives went to Bila's home, they were disheartened to find that he wasn't there, but they left a business card with a note requesting that he call them at his earliest convenience. Less than an hour later, the phone was ringing, and a nervous James Bila was on the other end. When lead detective Wignaski told Bila he was investigating a crime and would like to speak to him, he thought it was odd that Bila didn't ask him what he was investigating before agreeing to meet with him after work the next day. That's like, we see this a lot in things, right? Where somebody, they're like, oh, your wife was, or your wife was dead. They're like, oh my gosh. But they never say how. Or, you know, in this case, he doesn't even bother to say who. Like, what, how many things are you involved in that you don't have to even wonder what it's about? Yeah. Well, that's what the detective said that. They're like, usually people will be like, who do I know that's been hurt? Or, you know, what is this about? Because it's not every day that you get a homicide detective leaving their card on your door saying, please call me. So you would think you would want to find out the information. Right. Unless, of course, you already knew why they were there. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. On November 7, 2008, Detective Wignaski met with James Bila for the first time. Bila was nervous and avoided making eye contact with the officer, who had explained to him that he was investigating the murder of Brianna Dennison and that his name had come up along with several other male suspects. When the detective asked Bila to provide a DNA sample so he could be eliminated as a suspect, Bila changed his demeanor and instantly became uncooperative and told the detectives he would not comply with giving a saliva swab. He claimed that his girlfriend and mother of his child would provide an alibi for the night of Brianna's abduction. Even though the detectives had already determined that Bila fit the profile of the suspect they were searching for and that he owned a 2006 Toyota Tacoma extended cab pickup truck, they had no physical evidence that would guarantee a murder conviction, and they had to let him go. So here's a little bit of info that I found on James Bila. He was born on June 29, 1981 in Chicago, Illinois. His family moved to Reno when he was nine years old. And his home life as a child was kind of tumultuous, and his father would beat his mother on what was pretty close to a daily basis. As James got older, he was the life of the party. He was known for being a funny guy, kind of the class clown, but he also had a dark side and a short temper. Some people considered him to be a bully. He joined the Marine Corps and was discharged in 2001 for drug usage. After he returned to Reno in 2002, he threatened a former girlfriend's neighbor with a knife while he was drunk. He was arrested, and the girlfriend filed for a restraining order on him. He had to take a mandatory alcohol counseling class and was ordered not to contact the victim for a year, but because it was a misdemeanor, his DNA was never collected. He met his girlfriend, Carlene, after all this, and they had a son together. And he, at this time, was taking uh, martial arts classes alongside police officers and living a completely normal life with his girlfriend and his son. And uh, nobody thought anything was amiss about him. Detectives followed up with Bila's girlfriend, Carlene. She was the one who had given the anonymous tip that originally led the detectives down the James Bila rabbit hole. And she's the one person he named that could provide an alibi for him. When Carlene was questioned about Bila's whereabouts that night, she said she had absolutely no idea where he was, and she also confirmed for the detectives that she had found strange underwear in his truck. At first, she had assumed he was having some sort of affair. Remembering that one of the victims had mentioned seeing a baby shoe in Bila's truck, detectives asked Carlene if she had a child. She admitted that she had a four-year-old son and that James was the father of that child. 
The detectives then came up with an idea. If they couldn't get Vila's consent for a DNA sample, they might be able to obtain permission from Carlene to take a swab of the child's DNA, which Carlene's kind of on board at this point. Yeah. Well, I would be too. I would want to know, you know, one way or the other. Like, right. You have to find out at this point. And at this point, she knows he's saying he's not going to give his DNA. You know right. what I mean? Why? Why aren't why you doing you? that? Exactly. Mm-hmm. I would be, I, I would have my child right down there and be like, here you go. You Especially know? if you're the lead suspect, if you think, if you think, okay, well, he didn't do this, so obvi- this is an easy way to be done with it. We can be done with all this tonight or whenever DNA samples get back. I don't know the timetable. I don't think it's that fast. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> this isn't law and order. But yeah, you'd think you'd, you'd want to be done with that. If the child was Bila's son, they would have similar DNA profiles, which would be all they would need to tie Bila to the crimes. Carlene happily agreed to give her son's DNA to the police, but it would take a couple of weeks for the crime lab to process the sample and confirm or deny that the child had a biological relationship with the suspect. So, turns out, wasn't that night. It was a couple weeks. Right. (laughs) In the meantime, while they waited, detectives brought Carlene in for further questioning. She told them that she worked in a building with a view of the field where Brianna's body had been found and that she had actually watched as police arrived on the scene that day. She said she called Bila to tell him that she believed they had found the body of the missing woman and that he went completely silent upon hearing the news. Just minutes later, Bila quit his job, although he told Carlene that he had been laid off, and he skipped town the following day. He eventually sold his truck in another apparent effort to conceal his involvement in the crimes. Eight months later, James returned to Reno in a new vehicle, and that's when Carlene found the underwear and alerted the police. So she obviously was like, okay, you've been gone for eight months, and all this stuff has been going on, and they still don't know who killed this woman, and now you show back up, and then she finds the underwear. And so she's like, at this point, I can see how it was easy for her to tell the police yeah, about true. it, you know, because it had been a, lo- a while that he had been in kind of some weird behavior. He left and And sold the truck, and, and she right. knows this truck has been on the news and, you know, all of that. Right. When the DNA results on Carlene's son came back, it was confirmed that with 99% certainty, the child was the biological son of the unidentified suspect, which could only mean that James Bila was Brianna Dennison's murderer. Detectives arrested him the following day when he showed up to pick his son up from daycare, which is just so heartbreaking. This is just my personal opinion, but I hate that for his kid. I, that's what I mean. It's like, heartbreaking for the child. Like I I hope in my heart of hearts that there was just no other option to you want him to be caught right away, obviously. But I guess it could have been because they knew his like guard would be down at the daycare or that he would actually be showing up there. Like yeah. he was guaranteed to sh- to be there. Right. When police informed Carlene that her son's DNA was a 99% match to the killer, she went down to the police station to confront Bila herself. So I watched the video. You saw the video of this. Yes. It's super upsetting. It's gut-wrenching. It is because he's just standing there like stonewall, like just, just standing there. He's a big dude just standing there, and she's just over and over again asking like, did you do this? Did you do this? Tell but, me you didn't do this. But not just ask. I mean, she is like – breaking down like she is hysterical and like obviously anyone would be but um I mean she's literally just begging and pleading for him to like say I didn't do this or I have nothing to do with this and he just didn't didn't say anything yeah he wouldn't and it was no like compassion towards her or anything it was just him never denying it like he he would not she would say tell me you didn't do this and he would just Nothing. And that's right. all she was looking for is him to say that. And I bet if he said that, she she could have believed him maybe a little or, you right. know, had some kind of a hope. 
Police watched as she begged him to convince her that it wasn't true, but instead he avoids answering the question and makes a remark about how the police have DNA and that even a lawyer can't help him and said that he was effed. F apostrophe, or no, F asterisk, 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 E-D. <laughs> Got to keep that clean rating. There you go. Bila was charged with the rape of the two UNR students in 2007, as well as the abduction and murder of Brianna Dennison. He was facing the death penalty. The trial for Brianna's murder began in May of 2010. On May 27th, a jury found him guilty on five charges related to the case, as well as the sexual assault of the other two women. The following week, the same jury deliberated for nine hours before they reached the unanimous decision to execute Bila by lethal injection. James Bila appealed his case to the Nevada Supreme Court, and it was rejected. His attorneys continued to fight for his release from prison and have filed numerous extensions. I was unable to find whether a date had been set for his execution, but a prosecutor that worked the case has said that the average time that inmates spend on death row is 15 years. Brianna's family became advocates for DNA testing in the wake of her murder. On May 29, 2013, Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval signed Brianna's law into effect. Under the law, a mandatory DNA swab will be taken whenever a person is booked for a felony arrest and then cross-referenced with DNA from other crime scenes to see if the person arrested was involved in other crimes. So as Mandy and I were talking about this case and just how upsetting it was and um, and how much there is in the news right now about DNA with the Golden State Killer and um, that sort of thing, our friends Georgie and Kate with uh, Nothing Rhymes With Murder had an incredible idea and they are doing a GoFundMe of sorts um, in the true crime community to um, work with, to partner with In The Backlog. And In The Backlog is an organization and I'm not going to get this all right, so we will link it so you can get actual factual information. <laughs> actual factual. <laughs> I only use, what, actual, how many syllables is that? I don't <laughs> Actual. She has her hand under her chin right now, guys, just trying it's to see you clap. how many syllables. <laughs> so three syllable words. I use three syllable words. Um, so they have more information about that, but um, a lot of that is all these rape kits that go untested for years and years. So in this case, um, so much came from the DNA from these cases and then being able to test all this DNA and these rape kits, really. Um, and sometimes those will sit for years and years and never be tested, and you never know what links there can be. So the uh, fundraiser that they're doing, there's lots of cool true crime memorabilia. Not memorabilia. What is it called? Like swag? swag. <laughs> yes. That's a whole different thing. Yes, swag from different podcasts and stuff. So we are involved in that. And Georgie and Kate are so wonderful and so lovely to do something like this. So we are excited to join them. So we will have the link in our show notes because I've talked about it for five minutes and I'm terrible at explaining things. So I thought you did great. So we also want to give a very big thank you to our listener, Farron, who researched for this episode this week. Uh, she did such a really good job. And she sent me a lot of information, a lot of sources. She um, she was so adorable because she hand wrote notes on paper and then took pictures of it and sent it all to me. She could be like a detective. Yeah. Yeah. So it was great. And I could read her handwriting just fine in case she was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I really appreciate it, Farron. That helped me out so much. And also Melissa, but mostly me since I'm the research person. <laughs> 
I just do the terrible edit, editing at the end. No, you do great at that. Um, <laughs> no, thank you, Farron. And she's so lovely. And she's such a great part of our little Moms and Murder community. She's and such a great part of my life, Melissa. Yeah. Okay. Well, calm down. <laughs> Don't stalk her. Um, no, she's so lovely. And I, I love that she she helped us with this. So I do too. Yeah. So yeah. thankful. Thank you, Farron. You're wonderful. And you have a beautiful name and beautiful hair. It's Best just, hair ever. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to be Farron. Not in like I want to skin her and become her, but just she's gorgeous Thank and lovely. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we have a last thing before we go. Um, this is from our friend Chad B. That sounds like a rapper. Chad B. Yeah. What's up, Chad? Chad is actually my friend's husband. Okay. So he's kind of like a friend person. A friend person. <laughs> Chad, you're practically royalty. And Chad just wrote, First job, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> Melissa, go for it. What was your first job? And how old were you? Okay, so my first job, hmm, my first job, besides babysitting stuff, I basically wanted to be the babysitter's club from the time I was like 12. So I will say my first job was um, working as a lifeguard in Havana, which is north of Tallahassee, the country club there. There was no one there. So I just spent all summer sitting out eating Butterfingers, I bought butter, Butterfingers, Mountain Dew, and different various candies and just ate them and literally saved no lives, none, uh, never even <laughs> saw people. Nobody even showed up at the pool and I just sat in like the rain Did you do like myself. training for this job? Yeah, I was like okay. a legit life okay. lifeguard. Because <laughs> I just can't picture you like <laughs> saving someone's life. <laughs> well, thank God I didn't have to. I couldn't either. Um no, I had to go through like the whole, I think it was a couple weeks. And the really awkward part is um, my cousin, uh, David, who's really wonderful, but he went through the lifeguard training at the same time as me. But they would make you um, in the training. Have you ever done that? Like the courses or anything? Okay. They're really tough. I would not be able to do it now. You have to like pull people out of the water and all that stuff. Oh yeah, I know. But I kept having to pull like my cousin out and he'd have to pull me out. And I was like, this is kind of bizarre (laughs) it wasn't but I was like I think we should be paired up with other people but I didn't know anybody else so didn't want anybody else dragging me out of the water either there's a lot of things going on at that time oh and the weirdest thing about the class is you'd have to like pick out this is very boring you'd have to pick out like different scenarios and what would you do if you were a lifeguard they acted like I wasn't going to be in Havana and anybody was going to be there there would be a guy that would pretend that he like was a peeping Tom under the water. Whoa. So like you'd have to decide what you would do and all this stuff. And you had to learn how to do like the electrodes and say, I'm clear, you're clear, everybody's clear. There's those kind of things. I say that all the time. Like when the kids touch something, I'm like, I'm clear, you're clear, everybody's clear. That's like lifeguard 101 or probably CPR 101. You don't even CPR, do you? So anyway, that is mine. Please talk. I'm so done. (laughs) No, that was a cool story. I uh, no, it wasn't. That's a cool story, bro. Cool story. <laughs> it's a cool story, bro. Loved it. So my first job, I was 15, and um, I got an, a job at an ice cream parlor. Like, it was an actual, you know. Like Baskin Robbins? <laughs> no, that's what I was trying to say. Like, not like, not like a chain. It was like a, you know. <laughs> the opposite of a chain? <laughs> like a local mom and pop like store? A single person owned it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. But it was big. They had 32 flavors of ice cream. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was big like it had a chain. And I was like, that's the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> no, it was a big store. And okay. like it had, there was 32 flavors. We made everything uh, homemade. And like I used to have to do the work that nobody else wanted to do because of course I was... I was the young person that was mm-hmm. working there. And so I had to do all the stuff no one else wanted to do. Like I would have to go back in the freezer. Charlie work. Yeah. They would send me in the freezer with a clipboard and like tell me to go take inventory. Well, you don't realize how cold you get when you go into a walk-in freezer. <laughs> they could have left you there to die. <laughs> get up. But anyway, no, it was a fun job. Actually, it was a good first job, I thought, except obviously I ate a lot of ice cream. And um, I learned like what kinds of people like what kinds of ice cream. <laughs> so Mandy, quick question because this came up in our Facebook group. What kind of garbage ice cream flavors do you like? It's not garbage. First of all, I like chocolate ice cream, which I don't like chocolate anything else. Ice cream is the only thing huh. I like chocolate. Interesting. Yeah. And then I like pralines and cream. Old. It's not old. It smells like mothballs. Do you, <laughs> do you like pralines? So Pralines. How do you say that word? I'm going to say pralines. And um, I don't, I mean, pralines and cream is fine, but it's nothing it has to write home caramel. about. Yeah, it's delicious. It is. Caramel. Yes. Caramel. <laughs> we are not getting into this conversation. <laughs> New poll, caramel versus caramel. There's only one answer. Um, so I like those. What's your favorite ice creams? Oh, mine are boring. I like strawberry cheesecake. Like from, uh, don't, don't <laughs> change your eyebrows at me. Um, from, where is it? That one place that you don't go anywhere except to get ice cream, but not Dairy Queen. Cold Stone? No, that's too fancy for me. Um, I don't know what it's called. I don't know. Forget it. But it's the ones you can flip over. DQ. Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're like all their commercials have like flipped them over. Yeah. A blizzard, like strawberry, um, strawberry cheesecake See, ice I cream. I hate that. I don't want my ice cream to like stick to the cup so much that like it won't even move. Okay. Well, good for you. <laughs> We're all different. Caramel caramel. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> that's last thing before you go. I don't even go. know. I don't even remember the last five minutes of this I, whole yeah, conversation. I wish I could forget okay. it. Okay. Hope you guys have a great week. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.